This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. Hello, this is Fiona Porter, and joining us in the studio today is Taisa Danilovic from the University of Astronomy KU Leuven in Belgium. Hello. Hi, Fiona. Great to be here. So you're actually here visiting our ALMA office right now. That's right. I've been working on reducing some complicated ALMA observations. Oh, always <laughs> fun. So to get us started, could you tell us a bit about what you're researching at the moment? So I work on something called AGB stars. This stands for Asymptotic Giant Branch, which is a slightly meaningless term. Um, <laughs> this is a phase of evolution that most of the stars in our galaxy will go through. So you might have heard of supernovas, but those only happen to the most massive stars. So a star needs to start off being at least 10 times as heavy as the sun, so 10 solar masses, to end up in a supernova. Well, the other stars pass through what we call the AGB phase. So when they run out of fuel in their core, where they start off fusing hydrogen to helium, and they run out of hydrogen, they start to expand the core ends up being mostly carbon and oxygen, depending a bit on the star, and only a little bit of helium left around the core and a little bit of hydrogen around that continue um, with a nuclear fusion. And because these are thin shells, they're very unstable and it causes the star to pulsate. So it's not a dramatic explosion. It's a pulsating star which ejects its outer layers because of the pulsation. So these outer layers, this, this matter, this gas from the star, cools down as it moves away from the star and it turns into molecules and dust. And it's the molecules I look at. So if you're looking at, for example, a much hotter star, then you're not going to be seeing much in the way of molecules. It's just a bit too hot for that to be possible. exactly. So really hot stars don't have as many molecules, but these stars which are dying, uh, they're also a lot cooler because they've expanded. And when you sort of expand, you cool down. What sort of things can you learn from seeing these different molecules? So, all sorts of things. Um, One of the most important things we want to understand about these stars is how quickly they're ejecting matter. So if they eject it more quickly, they stay on this AGB phase for less time because they've run out of stuff to eject. Because uh, these stars, once they've ejected everything, what you're left with is the core of the star. So, as opposed to the outer layers, the core... And that's actually what a white dwarf is. It's it's the core of one of these stars, and it will be surrounded by what we call a planetary nebula. Not because it has anything to do with planets, it's actually because Herschel thought they kind of look like Uranus. Um, (laughs) And in astronomy, we have a lot of terms which turn out to have absolutely nothing to do with what an object actually is. Exactly, exactly. But the planetary nebulae are very pretty. And if you don't have a very good telescope, they are kind of different colours like the planets. So you can sort of see where the idea came from, but in reality, they're not actually planets at all. No. So, going back to the HGB stars, we want to know how quickly all the, the molecules and dust are ejected, so we know how long the AGB phase lasts. But that also tells us how much dust ends up being ejected, because if the star is in the AGB phase a bit longer there's more time for heavier elements to uh, be brought to the surface and then ejected. Whereas if it all happens more quickly, there's not as much time for that to happen, um, and we have fewer 
what we call metals in astronomy, which is everything heavier than hydrogen and helium. <laughs> um, but that's important because all that stuff being ejected is where future planets, future stars come from. So, well, the composition of all of that stuff is important. Also for understanding where our planet came from in the mm. past. So our listeners may be aware that uh, all the matter that's used to make up planets had to be made in stars first. So I suppose this is also quite interesting for people who are looking at current planet formation to see what the composition of the dust tends to look like so you can get a better idea of what the planets being made might be like. Yeah, exactly. So about half the dust in the universe comes from AGB stars and about half from supernovas. So it depends on where in the universe or the galaxy you're looking at what type of dust you're looking. But AGB stars are important dust factories for the galaxy. Are there any locations that AGB stars are more common then? Or are they just sort of evenly dispersed? Well, they're not found in sort of uh, clusters of very massive stars, because they have to be <laughs> But they are spread out through the galaxy, and the best studied ones are those that are relatively close, just because we can see them more easily. What happens if they're a bit too far away? Well, it depends. So sometimes maybe we can still see them. Usually we can, we can see them in at least the optical or the infrared. But how much information we can get out of that varies. So I actually mostly look at stars in the radio, in the millimetre, submillimetre range. And with that, what I'm looking at is molecules rotating. So when molecules rotate faster or slower, they emit radio waves. And by studying those, we can work out how much the star is expanding and what molecules are there as well. So this is all... Interesting information, but if the star is too far away, we won't be able to see like these molecular signatures. Right. So we can see them in our galaxy, we can see them in the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds, but further than that, for now, is difficult. I take it for some of them at least, uh, given that it's quite a dusty area, if they're going to be producing dust, then the issue is going to be that certain wavelengths are just blocked or there's extinction issues. Yeah, absolutely. So these stars are quite bright in the infrared, but not as bright in the optical, generally speaking. Uh, in fact, the closest AGB star to Earth is called Algoradus, which is in the southern hemisphere, and it's the brightest infrared source in the sky, but oh. it's not very bright in the optical. Why <laughs> <laughs> well, haven't heard of it before. Yeah, unfortunately... Unless you've got heat vision, that one's not going to be much for your back garden <laughs> observer. So how is Alma involved in in this process? How is Alma involved in picking up? I'm assuming it's going to be something to do with the spectral lines. Yes. So Alma is very useful because, well, before Alma, we would use a single radio dish uh, to observe spectral lines. So the spectral line is something where with frequency you get more or less emission, so that those spinning molecules I mentioned before, the photons they emit come at very specific frequencies. So we can observe those by using a normal single-dish telescope, as we say when we're comparing telescopes to ALMA. But the, the downside there is while we can have very good spectral resolution, what we don't have is any spatial resolution. So you can tell, for example, that, oh, this particular molecule exists somewhere in this area, but you can't really narrow it down at all. Yeah. We're pointing the telescope at the star. We're pretty sure it's coming from the star, but what sort of shape, how it is around the star, we can't see. 
but with Alma when we get lots of telescopes working together, as well as just being more sensitive, which is always useful, we can spatially resolve what we see. So we can see where the emission comes from on the sky. Essentially, we can zoom in really well. What sort of structure here are you seeing? Uh, do molecules tend to be centered around the stars themselves? Or is there other areas where like particular ones tend to congregate? Yeah, so that really depends on the molecule. So carbon monoxide is very common in space. You don't so much want it in your home. <laughs> Definitely uh, not. Uh, but there's a lot of it around these stars. Um, because there's just a lot of carbon and oxygen being formed around, uh, like inside the star. So when they come out, there's a lot of them. And the carbon monoxide will usually be spread out quite far from the star. So by quite far, I mean it will be located from the star something like thousands of AU from the star. Also, these stars, I said, expand. So mm -hmm. actually... One star will expand to be about an AU in radius. So when our sun <laughs> yeah. expands, it will swallow up the Earth, or almost swallow mm. up the Earth. Well, I mean, at that point, it's not really going to be something we're worrying about, I imagine. No, it's also about five billion years in the future. So mm -hmm. Yeah, so panic. don't panic, don't panic. <laughs> so, yeah, and carbon monoxide is one of the things we can use to trace how the star is ejecting all this stuff, because there's so much of it. Uh, it's quite bright. It's not too hard to see with our telescopes. So it, it's a good way of seeing what shapes the star is making in general. But then there are other molecules, some of which we can only see when they're very close to the star, mostly because they get destroyed very quickly. So that's the other great thing about carbon monoxide. It's a very strongly bonded molecule. And I guess there must be others which are just a bit more precarious, and uh, it's a pretty extreme environment. Yes. Just in general. I mean, so close to the star, we need sturdy molecules that can exist in quite hot environments. But then when we get further away from the star, we can get all sorts of strange things. So we can have, for example, carbon chains that are actually so hard to make on Earth that they're very hard to study to compare to what we see in space because there's just too much air on Earth. <laughs> we're not very stable in air. One of those cases where... As we could make this, but it's probably going to involve our lab burning down, so maybe let's not. Something like that, or at least it will take a lot of energy to keep it in the nice vacuum. But some of those molecules, when you start to get carbon atoms chaining together, those have to form further away from the star because they need to be in a colder environment. Because, look, they're still not stable in space. It's <laughs> just... Maybe I'm making it sound like there's a lot of stuff around these stars, and, like, there is, but stars are quite big and then this stuff is in quite a large area or a large volume so the density of the matter ejected from the star which we can call a stellar wind as well mm -hmm. it seems very bright but it's actually less dense than air at sea level yeah but if you're comparing it to say sort of like your pure vacuum then and yeah. i suppose even just other areas of the interstellar medium although it obviously yes. it's going to vary a bit depending on exactly where you are but if you're right up to a star with a stellar wind, then obviously it's going to be a bit more crowded relatively. It's denser and it's in general warmer, although at the outer edges it can get quite cold where it meets the sort of other interstellar medium that's been sitting there for longer. If I remember rightly, you have a particular interest in things going on with sulfur compounds. Uh, yes, that's true. So some of the molecules that I've been looking at recently over the past few years have been what I call sulfur-bearing molecules. 
So uh, sulfur monoxide, sulfur dioxide, more things you don't want to encounter in real life, <laughs> um, which are found around oxygen-rich stars, So because you've got the, the oxygen there reacting with the sulfur. And basically the sort of interesting thing I discovered is that the way in which these sulfur molecules are distributed around some of these oxygen-rich AGB stars, I should say we have oxygen-rich and carbon-rich are the sort of two main categories. Because uh, when stars have stopped burning their hydrogen and helium, they go through periods of burning other things for a while, and two of those are going to be your carbon and your oxygen, for people who are a bit less up to scratch on their stellar chemistry. Exactly, and also the age and the mass of the star affects whether it's oxygen or carbon-rich. But So what I discovered is that among oxygen-rich stars, the sulfur-bearing molecules SO and SO2, sorry, sulfur monoxide and sulfur dioxide <laughs> are found in different regions around the star depending on other properties of the star, which we weren't really expecting. So for the stars that are ejecting matter slower, these molecules are found close to the star, sort of like they're formed close to the star, which is a common thing we see with many molecules in general. But for stars which are ejecting matter faster, there's a bit of these molecules close to the star, but the peak in abundance of these molecules is further out. Huh. Yeah, it turns out to be different ways in which they can be formed. So looking at just sulfur monoxide as the main example, and then sulfur dioxide is formed from sulfur monoxide. So mm. yeah, it actually forms from this molecule that's SH, just a sulfur and hydrogen together, which is not actually very common on Earth. But this molecule reacting with just oxygen atoms can give us sulfur monoxide. However, this reaction can only happen in very hot regions, so it can only happen close to the star. Right. Whereas for the other types of stars, the ones that are ejecting matter more quickly, we have a little bit of that happening close to the star. <laughs> but for some reason, and we don't actually know the reason yet, it doesn't happen as much, um, and some other molecules fall instead. This, this is still something that we're working on. <laughs> but instead we have a reaction of hydroxide, which is what we get when water is photodissociated by the interstellar radiation field when it gets far enough away from the star. So once water, which also forms very easily, gets far enough away from the star, gets photodissociated by light from just mm -hmm. other miscellaneous stars, and then we have hydroxide floating around, and that hydroxide can react with sulfur make sulfur monoxide. So we have this difference, we can see this difference, and we can explain it the way I just did with different chemical reactions, but we don't know why exactly they should behave so differently. So, you know, some of my colleagues are still working on that, <laughs> some of the more chemistry-minded ones. It's an interesting thing to find out. I suppose you get these things sometimes, don't you, in astronomy, where you see something and your immediate thought is, huh, that's odd. Yeah. Why is it doing that? <laughs> and that's how we keep finding new things to research, is just someone going, that's odd. Yes. Well, on the <laughs> other hand, I just mentioned water close to these stars, which mm -hmm. maybe sounds odd to some of our listeners. There's actually a lot of water out in space. Oxygen is very common, and hydrogen, hydrogen is extremely common. <laughs> most common thing in the universe. And uh, water is the most stable thing you can make by throwing those two things together. So basically there's water everywhere except on Mars. Well, that said, it's obviously not going to be in the splashy form. <laughs> no, no, it is still floating in space, so it's in gas form. 
but it's formed more or less on the surface of the star or very close to the surface of the star and then pushed out along with everything else and eventually turns into ice and that's maybe at least partly where some of the ice uh, well, some of the water and ice in our solar system and on Earth came from. Because you do see things like that quite commonly on things like comets and asteroids as long as they're far enough away from whatever star they are orbiting around. Yeah, exactly. It's very easy to make water. The main issue with it is always going to be getting into a place where it's able to be liquid. Yes. Well, when it's on a planet, the right distance from a star. I mean, that, that's a that's a separate problem. <laughs> yeah, not so much a concern for your field. No, not yet. So that is your own field of research, of course, but you are doing something else with Alma at the moment, is that right? Yes. So actually I'm here working on some observations for the Atomium project, which is an Alma Large program. Large program just means we used it for many hours. I think over 100 is the criteria. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing with the Atomium project is looking at several different AGB stars that have different properties so that we can compare them or compare how they differ or are the same. And we're looking at the kinds of molecules that turn into dust to try and work out exactly how, or as exactly as we can, work out how dust is formed, or what molecules don't form dust because we can still see them being molecules. That's the other side of it. So for this project, we have very high-resolution ALMA observations, but then we also have lower spatial-resolution ALMA observations because we want to be able to see things on small scales and large scales. So you both want to be able to actually localise particular molecules to particular areas, but also just sort of say, in this vicinity, there is X, Y, and Z. Yes. And so we looked at the same frequencies using actually three different configurations of ALMA. So that's the telescopes in three different locations or sets of locations, initially. And when they're further apart, we get higher spatial resolution observations. And when they're close together, we get lower spatial resolution observations but we're able to see bigger things. The fun-slash-weird thing about an interferometer like ALMA is that if you set it to the extended configuration where you have lots of high spatial resolution uh, things that you can see, you actually resolve out some of the things. And this is a weird quirk where the telescope, the set of telescopes, acts as a spatial filter, and we can only see small things and not big things. So this is why it can be quite important for interferometers to have lots of different telescopes involved so you can both manage to be able to see uh, your really fine detail on the small things, but you can also still see the bigger things exist. Yes. We don't want to not see the forest for all the trees, basically. (laughs) But what I'm here working on this week is combining our high and low resolution data together into one cube so that we can sort of see everything at once instead of looking at it separately. It also just uh, increases the quality of the data because we're sort of adding together several observations. But it's a bit complicated. <laughs> That's why I have to come here to do it. I can imagine. What's the data you're working with actually look like? Um, what is it? Is it uh, more spectral lines then? Well, it is more spectral lines, but then because we can see where they are, several of our stars, for example, have like spirals in them. Um, and we think that's because there's some sort of companion. Well, in some cases we know that there's a companion, but in some cases we didn't already know that there was a companion. Um, and when I say companion, I mean another star or perhaps a large planet. 
which is making patterns in the gas that's coming off the star. So we have some spirals, we have some other weird shapes I'm not sure how to describe, but at least <laughs> everyone can picture a spiral. That sounds like it must be quite interesting to see. I suppose it makes sense as a method to sort of identify companions, but it's a bit uh, limited in terms of... I suppose it's only really going to work for the AGPs, isn't it? Well, yes. And it was unexpected the first time we saw like a, a really bright spiral as well. Not in our project. This is a few years ago now. Yeah, generally you don't expect to see stars <laughs> making spirals in an... No, that's what spiral galaxies are. it's a star which has just got really big aspirations (laughs) so what is it you're hoping to end up doing with the data do you know or is it a big question well so on the one hand there's the the big question that we want to answer about dust but we also want to i mean some of what i've been looking at are molecules that we haven't seen much at all before because they're so faint there's not much of the molecule out there so it's just hard to see with worse telescopes, basically. <laughs> so I'm particularly interested in working out what those molecules are, how much of them there is around each star, and some contribution as to why, which is the harder question to answer. Well, because here on the Jodcast, we don't believe in letting hard questions go to rest. Is there any logic that you've find so far um, as to where the different molecules appear. I know you mentioned earlier that obviously some of them can only form in particularly hot or particularly cool areas. So far, from the point of view of close to the star or not close to the star, what we're seeing mostly makes sense. There's a few strange ones that need to be looked at in more detail, but I should also say we haven't finished the analysis, so I'm not going to say anything (laughs) firm. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is, you know, some molecules found in these stars and not these stars. That's a little bit more confusing. So there's some molecules which will show up in one star and then just won't in another star, which is otherwise fairly similar. Yeah, there seem to be some pattern with sort of other properties of the star. So we can maybe make some generalizations or like predictions for other stars that are similar, but we still need to work out why. Well, that's what research is for, I suppose. Got to be something to keep looking for. Well, it's been lovely to have you here. It's been lovely being on here. Thanks very much. Cheers for now. Bye.